0: Welcome to episode 54 of Talking Prisoner. Today's episode takes us beyond the walls of Wentworth Detention Centre and into a different institution that has stories as equally compelling to tell. My special guest today is Governor Eddie Mullins, who is the governor of Mountjoy Prison in Ireland. Now, for those unfamiliar, Mountjoy Prison is one of the most significant correctional facilities in Ireland, with a long and storied history dating back to its establishment in 1850. Eddie Mullins' tenure at Mount Joy gives him a unique perspective on the correctional system and a wealth of experience and insights, which he has graciously agreed to share with us today. As a governor of Mount Joy Prison, Eddie's role is a demanding one, fraught with challenges, but yet rich in opportunities to make a difference. Welcome to Talking Prisoner, Governor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me
1: on your podcast, Matt. I'm really intrigued...
0: Been looking forward to this all week. Um, yeah, really, really happy you came on. And uh, it's afternoon there at the moment in Ireland, yeah? It's it's three minutes past one o'clock and it's lashing rain here, so the weather is really poor. <laughs> 10.05 at night at the moment in Australia. <laughs> right.
1: Now, it's before probably we get still nicer.
0: This... <laughs> Sorry? It's probably nicer anyway over in Australia than it is here at the moment. Oh, it's cold here in Melbourne at the moment. We're in uh, winter. Sorry. <laughs> now before we get into the prison stuff
1: where did you um get yeah. up as a child so i'm I'm from dublin i'm from a place called the south inner city um born to a family of eight siblings wow. um uh, four boys four girls we lived in a very modest 3 bedroomed uh corporation is what we call it house so a, a city council house uh in the in a very uh I, I wouldn't say poor uh, part of Dublin, but certainly a, 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 a working class area in Dublin. Okay. Um, went to school, uh, obviously did my state exams and trained to be a chef. Um, worked as a chef for a number of years, joined the Irish Prison Service in 1991 and uh, held a ver- variety of roles in the prison service over the last 32 years. Uh, was appointed to a position of governor in what we call an open centre, in 2014 and i've held the role of governor in five institutions since then
2: well
0: so you went from shift to prison what was the uh how did that transition yeah. happen well
1: it's <laughs> funny I, I i would call myself a reluctant prison officer my um my wife who was my girlfriend at the time her father was in the prison service and uh, i suppose the the uh the Money or the livelihood that I could have earned as a chef was poor enough. And my wife gave me an, up, an ultimatum at the time. She said, you get yourself a good job or I'm out of here. And uh, so I joined the prison service and didn't look back since Yeah. So that's really, it was it was a kind of an accidental um, career really in many ways. Wow.
0: Now it was July 91 when you first entered the prison system. Do you remember what it was like training
1: or starting in, in 91? I do. I do, and it was a very uh, daunting, and I came, every every recruit prison officer reported to Mountjoy Prison, so oh, you wow. po- reported to the gate, and you, there was a room at the main gate, and you would sit there, and established prison officers would all walk by and look in and laugh, and then they would uh, move on, and then we were, the, the training instructor would come in, he was a real drill sergeant, and he'd walk around the room and point to people and say, you need a haircut, you need a haircut, you need a haircut. So we were sent to the local barber to get a haircut and we came back and he went around the room again and sent some of us back for a second haircut because we didn't get enough cut the first time. <laughs> and then we went to our training college and we spent eight weeks there and did some familiarization in a couple of prisons and then was assigned to your prison for your, for the beginning of your career. My first prison was a, 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 an institution called St. Patrick's Institution, which was a, a prison for young offenders. And it was attached to Mountjoy Prison, but they were run independent of each other. So that was, and I spent nine years in St Patrick's Institution, and then I moved to a few different institutions and got a number of promotions along the way, and ultimately ended up here in Mountjoy. Wow! And now you're at a prison called—is it Port Leash? How do you how do you pronounce that? So it's called Port Leash. Leash, sorry. Port Leash. Okay. Okay. And Port Leash is. uh, in Ireland, we have 12 prisons, uh, and Portlaoise is our high-security prison. Okay. So so back in the day when the, the troubles were in Northern Ireland, we needed a prison to deal with uh, people who were convicted of terrorist offences, and Portlaoise was the high-security prison. It's a small prison in, by, 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 by t- in terms of scale, about 250 prisoners, but it was high security. It was protected by the army, so you had prison officers and oh. army and Gardaí working it. Uh, it's still a high-security prison, but obviously with very few people uh, in 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 custody for, uh, we'd say, um, um, terrorist offences now.
0: Okay. Wow. Because I had a bit of controversy. Going, I read up back in the, uh, I think it was the 70s, there was a, a Sean McCarley refused to wear prison clothes and went on a yeah. five-year not wearing clothes.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Portlaoise was one of those places because it was um, because of the troubles in the north of Ireland. Um, a lot of people who were who were sent to Portlaoise considered themselves political prisoners, okay. and they felt that as political prisoners they should be treated differently. So the standard prison regime they've refused to conform to it. So for a good few years in Portlaoise, it was a very tense environment. There was a lot of them um, would we'll say conflict between staff and prisoners. It's wow. no way. It's not like that anymore. It's a much more, it's like any other prison now, but that, for a good period during the troubles in Northern Ireland, Portlaoise was a very tense place to be. Wow. And what were the, what are the offices like now
0: compared to when you were in the service in the nineties? Is there a difference?
1: Well, it's funny because I would say that uh, uh, they're the same, but they'd say we're we're dinosaurs now. So in many respects, um, you know, prison doesn't change that much. The the, the 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 attitude that you would have towards staff would be much more inclusive than it was in my day. So it was a much more austere place to be. It certainly wasn't as friendly as it is now. Um, and I suppose like every, every uh, organization, it's evolved over time. So, you know, human rights, respect, and all of the, uh, the important aspects of imprisonment have yeah. improved over the years. So facilities have improved, uh, standards have improved, you know, um, uh, dignity, respect has improved, you know. So it would have been a much more difficult place when I joined. Yeah. Wow. And can you give the listeners
0: and the viewers, because we're, we're on podcast and the YouTube channel, your daily, you know,
1: as a governor, what, what do you do daily? when you come in in the morning? so Yeah, so I, I usually come in about eight o'clock in the morning, and uh, the first thing we'll do, we'll have a management meeting. So we'd have meet with our chief officers and the other governors who work in the prison, and we would discuss our numbers. So one of the issues in Irish prisons at the moment is overcrowding. So we have additional prisoners sharing cells that we wouldn't have had uh, 12 months ago or 15 months ago. So that creates a bit of a problem. So we look at how many people we got in the night before, do we need to transfer people out do we need to send people out in temporary release and we liaise then with headquarters which is our would say our operations director, about how we might move some prisoners on if they're coming towards the end of a sentence or if the sentence is, is a short sentence and they they're suitable to go back into the community so that's our management meeting we have that at nine o'clock every morning and then we'll go around we'll div- divvy up the prisons So the prisoners today for example in mount Joy, there's 808 prisoners wow. so each governor and chief will walk around the prison and meet prisoners and talk to them. And and it's it's what what we call a governor's parade. So it gives the prisoner an opportunity to meet the governor, make some requests. They might be requesting simple things. They might look for a transfer to another prison. They may be looking for temporary release. They might be looking to engage with counselors, addiction counselors, psychologists. and They use that opportunity in the morning to talk to the governor and chief to make their requests. And of course, we will also deal with disciplinary issues. So a prisoner is on a disciplinary report. We take that opportunity in the morning to deal with that disciplinary report. So it usually takes about an hour in the morning. Then we come back and we'll do, you know, there's lots of correspondence. There's lots of uh, engaging with other prisons, uh, engaging with the staffs. And your day is pretty full doing, you know, doing all of those kind of tasks. So it's a busy day. And I'd usually wrap up around five o'clock in the evening. And uh, I suppose as the boss, I can go a little bit earlier than the the rest of the team. But I try not to do it too often.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, overcrowding. Is that, a, is that a common problem in the prison system? Is there a reason? There's over, is there more inmates coming in than normal? Or,
1: Yeah, so I suppose there's a couple of reasons. Um, uh, the population in the, of Ireland has increased. So, I mean, when I joined the prison service, our population was about three and a half million, and it's now five million. So, naturally, the population, as the population grows, the number of people going into prison will also grow. Uh, there was a, certainly a backlog from COVID, so when COVID, which, so for the two years of the COVID pandemic, um, we reduced our prisoner numbers by greater release, Our courts were closed. So there was a delay in prosecutions and, and, and all of that now we're starting to catch up. So there are more people coming into prison. Wow. And we haven't built any additional prison space in the last five years. So we're now in a position where we're looking at two things. One, alternative to prison, so not sending p- people to prison in the first instance, but also... Building additional accommodation to deal with the with the with the additional numbers, and that's going to take some time. So we're just in this bit of a crisis at the moment that we have additional we have additional numbers, and we don't have the capacity.
0: Wow. Now, before you said you talk about when you go home. Now, I, I am interested yeah. to know you got a big, huge, demanding job there. Do you find it hard to switch off when you go home? You're at night. You're thinking about the prison things
1: that are going on. You know, you do tend to be. Yeah, I I I, I suppose. I'm, I'm so long around now that I don't uh, don't dwell on the job, but you do. I do find myself, for example, if I'm sitting watching from the TV, checking an email or checking, see something that might come from a colleague. So you are always switched on to a degree, but not. it's not something that you're not obsessed by it. And uh, yeah, you, I've learned over the years to be able to switch off a bit and to kind of, uh, you know, I've a really good team here. We have a good relationship with all the, uh, our t- I would say, our managers. So when I'm not here and somebody else is here, I great faith in them to do the job so I, I don't have to worry to that degree but yeah you do tend to switch on and off a bit you know?
0: yeah fantastic and can you give the uh, the viewers and listeners just sort of a daily sort of oh sorry not a daily but when an inmate arrives what the process is
1: for an inmate on the first day of arrival so i suppose um you know the first thing to say is a lot of people who come to prison in ireland a big number have been to prison before so they're very used to the system. So. Uh, If you think of somebody who has never been in prison before, so they're sentenced from the courts, and they're taken up in a prison van from one of the courts in the city, and they arrive, that can be quite a daunting um, experience. Uh, You mentioned that Mount Joe was built in 1850, and though it's quite modern in many respects, so in-cell sanitation, we we had single-cell accommodation for most people up to a year ago. So in terms of facilities, they're quite good, but they are very old-fashioned, so it's a very old building. small quite small cells small low low hanging uh, ceilings low doors so it is quite intimidating so when a person comes into prison in the first instance they'll be meet they'll be met at the gate by an assistant chief officer who is a uniformed officer who will take their details and take them to an area what we call reception So reception, again, is in the basement of the prison, it's quite low, quite low ceiling, um, and they'll engage with the reception officer about, so he'll take some of their details, personal details, Um, they'll be given an opportunity to have a shower, and they'll be given prison clothes they might meet a chaplain at that stage, a nurse will also come and take some medical details, see if they need any medication. A lot of people have addiction issues in prison, so they'll talk about maybe methadone programs or whatever they need to get through that first night. And then they'll be taken from reception to what we call our committal area. So it's a small part of the prison where a prison will spend the first night in the committal area. Um, It gives them an opportunity to kind of realize where they are, accept where they are before we move them to the madness of the prison where everybody is running around and and, and it's a crazy kind of environment. So it gives them an opportunity to adjust. And we also then will use that opportunity. So it's a 24 hour period. Governor will go and meet them. A Doctor will see them. Psychologist might see them. Addiction counselor may go down to see them. So we get a general picture of the person's state of mind. And it also gives them an opportunity to tell us if there's any difficulties, very often there's people come into prison are in conflict with somebody else. So we have to be sure before we put them in a part of the prison, we'll be sure that there isn't conflict going to happen there so they're safe and all that so that 24 hour period gives you an opportunity to build up a picture. And it gives them an opportunity to, I suppose, accept what's just happened. and and start to, co- to comprehend what's in front of them, you know, and then they'll move to usually within 24 hours, but of course that's not hard and fast rule at the moment because of our overcrowding situation, sometimes people stay a little bit longer in the um, committal area, but usually they will move up to a part of the prison and very often they will know somebody in that part of the prison and they will kind of start that process then, and it is a difficult place, like um, Mount Joy is a very unique prison, it's 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 a city center prison, so it's surrounded by housing, right? Every every side of it is surrounded by housing. We have a a canal running at one side um, and it is can be chaotic at times and you can have a lot of conflict and have a lot of sadness. You can have every actually, I would say you'd see every emotion in every day, you know, so you'll see anger, you'll see depression, you'll see sadness, you know, people get bad news, chaplains are delivering bad news to people in relation to bereavements and that kind of stuff, so it's a real mixed bag of emotions every day, Um, and then we have an issue in Ireland in relation to gangland, so we have a gangland culture, so we have to obviously be mindful of the gangland issue, it spills over into prison, so you have to ensure that we keep people separated, that we are on top of it in terms of uh, information and intelligence so wow. we can deal with the situations that they arise. So it's a quite a, it's a, it's yeah. an interesting but challenging environment.
0: Yeah. So you have a lot of planning that goes behind when an inmate arrives. You've got to be checking things with who they're affiliated with. And, and I mean, <laughs> I, I had no idea
1: about that. I'd like to say we do, Matt, but a lot of the time we we, we make it up as we go along. No, no, I'm joking. No, a lot of the time what we do is we work with the guards, which so you would call me a police force, we'd call them our guardee. We'd work with them in the community and we would try and build up a picture, particularly of high profile people who come in. So we know what to expect and we try and be ahead of the game in terms of how we will manage that. But of course, you're dealing with people who don't want to be here. So they are very uh, um, unique and there's a lot of, uh, you know, you have to just have to be wise to what's going on around you really in many
0: ways. Definitely. Now you mentioned before about guards having to deliver sad news and things like that. So I'm assuming, you know, if someone's passed away, they're not allowed to go to a funeral if they're serving a sentence. I mean, how do you deal with that in a delicate way? So,
1: so there's no there's no set rule for it. So if somebody passes away, uh, if a loved one passes away, and the person is serving a sentence which is not particularly violent, or the risk is not significant for them to be released to attend the funeral, we will allow them go to the funeral. Okay. If it's a high risk prisoner, we will try and set up a webcam in one of our um, chaplain areas, or our, we call it our church, and we'll allow them then to view the funeral on uh, on a webcam, or we might take the person, if, if we have the staff to do it, we might take the person to the funeral home in advance of the funeral. So we might oh, take them to the undertaker and they could, you know, pay the respects to their loved one there in private. So there's no one size fits all. We try and facilitate, but it's always based on the risk. If there's a significant risk to taking the person out of prison, we usually go with the webcam.
0: Okay. Well, wow. that's interesting. Do you um do you see a big difference in inmates from and I asked that about officers from when you were first in the service, but do you see a difference in inmates back then to
1: now? Uh, yeah, there's probably is uh, what I would say is um like people there's a big focus in Ireland on gangland and gangland culture. So for a couple of years there in the city centre, we had a particular feud between two gangs, and there were a number of high, number of high profile murders, and that kind of created this impression that gangland has become endemic in the country but the reality is when I joined the prison service in 1991 we had gangland it wasn't as sophisticated but we did have gangs and we did have uh, organized crime now I think the, the social media aspect to organized crime has made it a much more sensational type of thing but it has always been there in some shape or form so it has evolved it's become more sophisticated social media mobile phones all of that technology has allowed people to run empires without actually being physically present. So that's always yeah. a challenge for us. But yeah, you know, and and, and obviously the, 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 the drugs culture has become such a significant part of criminality. And like I find here in the prison, you know, there's a huge proportion of people in here who are engaged in criminal behaviour because of the drug addiction. So they are probably in, engaged in crime to feed a habit Okay, they're not becoming millionaires or very, very, uh, they don't live lavish lifestyles out of their criminal behaviour. But they're the people that tend to be tend to be apprehended and tend to be sentenced to sentence, you know, to to, to, to terms in prison. So it's a it's a it's a very mixed bag in terms of uh, the type of people we have in prison. I, I do think a lot of people here could would society might be better served if they were serving a community sanction as opposed to a prison sanction because when you go into prison I mean you you meet other criminals you meet people who are more sophisticated so in, in many ways it's a bit of a a college for criminality you know when you go in you learn more about criminality in prison than you will in the community so that would be my own personal view anyway. That, that actually brings me to a, a whole heap of questions okay. like before
0: we, I know you're very big on re- rehabilitation of, of Um, how do you help them integrate back into society once they've left
1: Mount Joy? And, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest challenge. So I met a guy last week uh, who I met him actually in the probation service in the city center. And he looked very well. He'd been in prison. He looked well. He had been, uh, he, but he was availing of homeless services and he explained to me that he wasn't using drugs, but he was drinking a lot of alcohol. And because he was drinking a lot of alcohol he was fighting a lot so he was getting involved in more fights in the community than he would alcohol being a much more you know it tends to make people more aggressive we would say than than other substances so and the point the point he was going to make was he felt that his life in prison was more structured he knew what he was doing every day he knew what he could he could get up and go to school or he could you know, he'd have his three meals at, at dedicated times. And there was a, a structure to his life that is completely missing when he's back in the community. And that's where the community, I think, fails people who have been in prison. And I've met people going outside the prison. And when when you go out to, to the front of our prison here, there's a, a main road runs along the, along the front of the prison. And I've met people going out there and they'll stand and they'll look right and left. And then they'll just decide to go one direction. So they have nowhere to go. So they're leaving wow. the prison with this... You know, well, which way will I go? So when that's your starting point, having left prison, yeah. it's very, very difficult to get some sort of structure. Now, there's lots of community organisations and government organisations providing services to people in the community. Personally speaking, I think they're not joined up enough. I think they they need to be more coordinated because what this guy had said to me was, he can get up in the morning, leave the hostel he's in, have a nice meal, go somewhere and have a shower, but then for about four or five hours in the re- in the middle of the day is nothing to do and that's the real challenge it's it's having a day occupied so you can fulfill your time and and when you don't fulfill your time in a kind of a constructive way you tend to do you yeah. tend to drift and this is what uh, so that's a big problem I think it's a problem internationally I've gone to various yeah. conferences over there, and it is a problem that people say the structure of prison is good which is a kind of a perverse thing to say really but it is good compared to When you leave prison and you don't have a structure to your day. So a couple of things, I think, employment, education, addiction services and mental health services are really four key um, uh, factors or components to help a person stay out of prison. Uh, And there's lots of goodwill. Lots of people are there and, you know, want to support people. But I I don't know. We're not getting the outcomes we'd like to get. And recidivism is still very high, particularly among an age group, would say, between the age of... 20 and 35. That uh, males between 20 and 35 are the highest. You know, they, they, the recidivism rate is highest among that group of people. And I find, because I'm so long around now, that you talk to people who have, we'll say, steady relationships or have children, and they are the driving forces keeping them out of prison. So trying to be a good role model to the to a, to, a, to a, a child is a big factor in many many people's motivation to stay out of prison. But if you're young, free, 20, 30-year-old guy, you don't have that same um, uh, pressure and you don't have that same sense of responsibility. And that's where the the, the, the biggest problem is. Yeah. And it's interesting you say, I, I have
0: seen some interviews with inmates in Australia that said they prefer being in jail yeah. because of the, the three meals a day, the yeah. gym, yeah. the health, yeah. the education, and and it's all simple for
1: them. But you know, the funny thing is, uh, I was talking to somebody recently saying. We know what works because even though it's, it's prison, you, you mentioned gym, fitness is a big thing for, especially young men. So fitness, you know, uh, nutrition, uh, addiction support, uh, a roof over your head. So if we could replicate that in a different way in the community, we would see better outcomes. I think, yeah, I think we definitely see better outcomes. You know? And you
0: talk about the community and I just want to bring up one thing. You did a, uh, you did a TED talk, which I watched on YouTube, and you said society owes ex-inmates a second chance. Now, yeah. I know exactly what you meant by that, but I'd love for you to
1: rehash on that to the, to the viewers and the listeners what sure. you meant by that. Sure. sure. Well, you know, you could look at it from two ways. Um, and and I, I'm always conscious when you talk about people in prison that there is a section of society who have been victims of crime, who have you know, have really suffered tra- traumatic events and lifelong events, and they find it very difficult to accept somebody like me saying that somebody deserves a second chance. So you can look at it from two ways. I do believe the person require is, is you know, should be given a second, and sometimes a third chance, and sometimes a fourth chance. But at the same, but even leaving that aside, if we were to look at it from the benefits, okay, if if. Uh, I was uh, leaving prison today having served a sentence and I was provided with the opportunities and supports not to go back in prison that will eliminate a victim that will that will prevent somebody being becoming a victim of my criminal behavior when I leave right so from two from two if you look from two perspectives from a, a victim's perspective the more support we can provide to people who are involved in criminality to stop them engaging in criminality the less victims we will have and I know that sounds very simplistic but night follows day and 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 the same thing you know is applicable here but at the same time if you look at so many people who spend time in prison not them all there's quite a few people who engage in criminal behavior and make serious money and have no interest in rehabilitation and will come into prison serve their sentence and go back out and resume their criminal behavior and i'm not interested in those people but there's a huge group of people in prison who are engaged in criminal behavior as a result of poverty deprivation broken homes mental health addiction all of those issues and like you know i was talking to somebody recently uh, a, a a colleague uh, lost a loved one through addiction and i was talking if that person had passed away from cancer or from some other um, Ill, illness uh, the sympathy and the, the understanding would have been far greater than it was when somebody passes away from addiction so, you have to understand, addiction is an illness. It's the same as any other illness. And addiction is very prevalent in prison. So, you know, prisoners are much more likely to be addicted to substances than the general community. Like, we would, we would estimate that at least 70% of the people in Mountjoy today are. Uh, using uh, Ill- illicit drugs, uh, or at least, and or have used them, and uh, like just, about just on that, are they are they taking whatever they can get inside as well?
0: Yeah. May, maybe yeah. they
1: do a drug on the outside, but they'll take whatever they can get. Whatever they can get, and yeah. And what happens is there's a kind of a rule in prison. So if if uh, if a consignment of drugs gets into the prison, it's shared out. Now they pay for it, but it's shared out. So. Uh, so yes, whatever, it could be tablets today, it could be cannabis tomorrow, it could be cocaine the next day, and they will use whatever gets, or they'll use them all together if awesome. there's a plentiful supply. And that, and that brings its own challenges in terms of overdosing and, uh, you know, we are always fighting a battle to try and eliminate drugs into the prison. But And it's always one of those questions that people in the community scratch their heads and say, well, how do they get into prison? It doesn't make sense. Prison is like a small community. You know, we have people coming in and out the gate every day for a variety of reasons. Some people are compromised, some people are not. And and that's the reality. And you know, even if you get to a stage where you can't get it in, it's often thrown over the wall. You know, and people pick it up in the exercise yard. That's wow. that's a simple uh, that's okay. one of the one one of the simplest forms of getting drugs into prison is just drop it over the wall. Wow. Mm. <laughs>
0: Um, Now, the the court system and sentencing, I know know you've got some uh, thoughts on that, but do you find that a a court could sentence someone that's quite young, between 18 and 25, for something that's quite minor, they can do six months imprisonment, but that can actually be detrimental to them because, like you said before, they're going to learn from hardened criminals um, do you think the court systems get it wrong at times with sentencing?
1: So, I, I, I you know, it's funny because there's lots of debate here about the the uh, impact of short sentences on people. And, and statistically, the court service will tell you that, you know, lots of people get many, many chances before they are sent to prison. And that is the case. I think what the problem is, is that, uh, you know, people who are engaged in criminal behaviour will often be engaged in it For a long, long period of time, it could be minor low level offenses and eventually judges get sick of looking at the same person coming in front of them and they say, but the only thing that's going to work here is a sentence and I'm going to sentence you to 12 months. My difficulty with that is that I know of a case recently where a foreign national was uh, up in front of a judge, a district court judge, and he had 11 previous convictions for no insurance. And the do- the judge was just sick of it, and he said, "I'm sick of this. I'm sending you to prison." Right now, I could understand why the judge was sick of it, but uh, no insurance is a, a criminal uh, act. There's no doubt about it; it's criminal behaviour, and it needs to be treated appropriately. But prison isn't the appropriate uh, sentence for somebody who's no insurance. So we need to look at say, okay, if somebody is going to be a persistent offender for no insurance, we have to deal with that, but not by sending them to prison. So we still send people to prison. For the wrong offences you know we're, we're having a big debate in ireland at the moment about de- decriminalization of drug use okay so wow. not uh, so and it's a really big debate we have a citizens assembly running at the moment where you have lots of people with expertise from a variety of backgrounds talking about how we should deal with people who are you know both using drugs and selling drugs the problem is, is that in my view is that even if we do go down some route and we say we're going to decriminalization decriminalize drug use it will only really in my view affect the middle class because the middle class have the money to buy the drugs to uh, and to we say saturday night do your line of cocaine or whatever it is and there's a big issue in ireland around middle class drug use but they're not engaging in criminal behavior to buy the drugs they're, but they, but the drug use itself is it. so it will benefit the middle class but the yeah. people that i deal with will still end up because they might be shoplifting or stealing whatever they'll still end up serving a sentence even though the reason they've committed the crime is to buy drugs does that make sense yeah yeah it does so that's so we're, we're, we're not really grasping the nettle in terms of really supporting the most vulnerable people who are the people on the margins who have drug issues with drugs but also poverty deprivation, low, you know, lack of employment, all of those issues. It's a really multi-layered problem. And I think it's going to take a lot of courage and a lot of uh, uh, commitment to really start to deal with that issue. Do
0: you, uh, do you think politicians understand all that, or the prison system? And how it works
1: you know I, I have to say i over the last year i've engaged with politicians quite a bit we've run a couple of events in the prison and we've had so we've had politicians from the right and the left and I've all, i have to say i have found them all to be really interested and really trying wanting to uh support people as much as they can they have different viewpoints certainly people on the right would have a different view in terms of uh imprisonment and they, they would see that you know we need to be. We have the longer sentences and tougher sentences, but they will all acknowledge that the core problem is often down to poverty and deprivation and drug, you know, drug addiction and, and mental health and trauma and all of those things. So there's a, as I say, they will acknowledge it. Their their methods of dealing with it might differ, you know, to some degree. But I, I have found them to be engaging and willing to come in and listen and talk to us. So yeah, You know, I think that, and I think, you know, podcasts like your own, Matt, and all, all, you know, organizations having these conversations and bringing it to a wider community will only benefit the people in the, on the marginal society eventually, you know, so we're well done on that. Um, something you mentioned before about an inmate when they're released
0: and they, they literally walk out and left or right. It's one thing you've got the spent conviction scheme, which I know you've spoken about before. So there's mm-hmm. convictions that are recorded on an inmate's uh, record. I think it's for seven years as a minimum. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. do you think that needs to change where, because I mean, it would be very tough for an inmate to seek employment with it. Yeah. A um
1: i think there's two ways of looking at it i think yeah and we have we have some very progressive politicians who have brought legislation to our legislator to deal with the spent convictions bill it's called the spent convictions bill and to try and um and to make it you know to 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 limit the impact it's had on on people's abilities to get employment. i think what's a bigger issue is public perception about uh people in prison so we need to get people more willing to um to take on an ex-offender regardless of whether he has a conviction or not so my focus when i'm talking to people it's always about don't worry about the conviction piece this person has a lot to offer you know this doesn't define this criminal behavior doesn't define the person entirely you know if they were given the supports and i think public opinion is changing a bit like we do see state organizations now trying to employ people um who have convictions uh, where it was almost impossible to get a state job if you had a conviction before that's changing so i think what would be more impactful is culture change the legislation will always be difficult and always be awkward at times but um if you get people to buy into supporting people that'll bring a bigger change in my in my view yeah definitely Definitely. Um,
0: prison food, what's it like?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. They get fillet steak every day. And, they, you know, prison, prison prison food is like institutional food. I, I trained as a chef, so I'd be very familiar with um, with different styles of catering. And prison food, I would say, is no different to hospital food or, to instit- or school food or institution food. The problem with prison food is it's repetitive. So yeah. people you know and even though we would we would if we were if i was providing you with our menu we'd say god there's a great variety it's 20 it's what we call a 28 day menu it is pretty uh standard it's pretty i call it boring like it, it's it's institutional food so the prisoners will tell you it's horrible they'll say it's terrible food um but it meets a lot of standards uh it is there's you know the the, the quantity is sufficient uh nutritional value is good all of that it's not the most appetizing food of course it's not it's like as i say hospital food it's not appetizing but it does the job it does the job yeah definitely
0: <laughs> have you ever seen an inmate go, it's been released and gone on to do big things that have yeah. been rehabilitated and, and
1: just created something amazing for themselves a lot of uh, so i would i don't know any prisoners who became entrepreneurs for example so it's hard to break into the business world but i've said Certainly, seen guys leave prison who have made a big impact in society. Um, uh, so through social studies, so we've had lots of guys, for example, who would have used their addiction as a platform to become addiction counsellors. And 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 you know, we've learned over the last couple of years in the prison system that the most impactful people are people who have lived experiences. So they can sit down with somebody and say, "Look, no, you can't tell me anything I don't know. I've been there." I've been at rock bottom I know how difficult it is but look at me today and look what I've achieved and we have a lot of guys in prison who really want to give back and want to um, become you know supports for other people and you can see that impact across the organization we've two go- or across the country with two guys for example here who run a podcast in Ireland called the, the two Norries and the two norries are um, two guys who spent some time in prison would have had chaotic and they run and it's a number one podcast in ireland and they talk about their experience and they bring people onto the podcast and challenge them about how they can support people and that's having that's having a huge impact and like our department of justice for example have employed the two norries now to talk to policymakers about you know their experience and how policies that people write impact on other people's lives. So, so there is a big change. So yes, I've seen people in prison make an impact. Uh, we, need to, we need more people like that. We need more people out yeah. there who can articulate in a way that people understand and, and also not preach. Like, and I always think there's nothing like a working class accent. So when you have somebody who speaks plain language, who says it as it is? Who's been in that situation and can challenge people? It'll be far more impactful than an academic speaking, where an academic speaks about the academic philo- uh, the philosophy on things, which is not necessarily in line with the lived experiences of other people. You know? Yeah,
0: amazing. That's that's <laughs> great to hear. That um, education <laughs> in prison—what's what, it like in?
1: Mountjoy, what sort
0: of education yeah. are they able to...
1: So education, our education system is provided by our state education system. So so we have teachers who are employed by the state education system working in the prison. And I would say that the, my, in my personal opinion, the, the, the most impactful service in the prison is education. People in prison, and I generalize when I say this because it doesn't apply to everybody, but a significant number of people in prison... Had a very poor experience with state education as children, so yeah. we we estimate about 70-75% of the prisoner population never did a state exam. Okay? Oh, really? Never finished school. So, so they their first experience with education has been very poor, but education in prisons is a much more it's much it's much more equal. Okay, so the teachers have a relationship with the prisoners that is based on equality. There's no uh, there's no judgment, and it always, it, all, it always inspires me when I go to our school. I always come out in good form when I see prisoners who are struggling in, in many other aspects of their life. They love school. They love education. They love art. They love reading. Our library is very important. So education, I think, is probably one of our best examples of support in prison. And we're lucky that we have teachers who are very, very committed um, and they'd have to be because it's not a nice environment to work in. So you, you could go and work in some lovely schools in the community. So coming into prison, it's a difficult environment. So you yeah. have to com- be committed and want to do it. And thankfully they do. So education, I think is something we sh- we should be proud of.
0: Definitely. Now I did ask you before about, do you find it hard to switch off from your job? Um, one thing I would like to ask you, do you see court cases on TV and see crimes and think, wow, that, that, that crime just, you know, you can't work out why they did it. But then you have that inmate come to your prison. You, yeah. You find it hard. And it's funny.
1: I don't find it hard to, uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I would say all of my colleagues, 90% of my colleagues would say the same thing here. Um, I think part of our training and part of our uh, uh, daily routine makes you somewhat immune to get too engrossed or embroiled in the nature of the crime. So you do see people coming and I, regularly I would watch uh, we would say the, the six o'clock news and you would see somebody reporting from the court in relation to somebody who was sentenced and I would know that I was going to meet that person the next day or one of my colleagues would meet that person the next day and we' go through the committal process and very often the, the reporting and the reality are very different so when you come across that person you know and you've heard the details of the crime and it sounds very heinous and it sounds very violent and all those things. And then the person sitting across the table from you and they're very meek and they're very uh, often very traumatized by what's just happened. And you're looking and you're saying, God, that doesn't really match the description. That's not to say now that there are lovely people sitting opposite you, but it is often a different dynamic and it is a different dynamic. And we do tend to just follow the process so you have a, a particular set of questions to ask the person. You get an understanding of how they feel, um, and 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 just take it from there. And I rarely, I mean, I'm sure I can't think of a particular instance now, but I'm sure in the past I've gone away and said, "Oh my God, I can't believe I just met that person." But it rarely happens, you know. You just it's a job, it's something you have to do. And I think if you it, the worst possible thing to do. And it's not a job for me if you're going to go home and think about the people you met every day, because then you'll only set yourself into that kind of spiral of turmoil. So we don't do that. And and, and we would have a lot of supports, you know, both uh, some from psychological and counselling supports for staff to deal with traumatic situations. Yeah. Um, and that, that's something that the organisation would be very, very keen to, you know, to continue to grow supports for staff for people when they are um you know, when they're experiencing difficulties. But you do you do create a resilience over years as well, and you become somewhat immune to, you know, the situation in the community, you know. Wow. Amazing. Um,
0: now, COVID, I, I don't want to talk too much about COVID, but what was it yeah. like in prison when COVID hit?
1: So COVID, the funny, the funny thing about COVID is Ireland was held up as a, a model of best practice. We had very, very few outbreaks. We had two people um, who died... And their deaths were attributed to COVID, but they didn't die from COVID. You know what I mean. So they had they had them um, uh, other health underlying health issues, and COVID. Then the two combination of both they lost their lives. But so we managed COVID extremely well in terms of the, containing it, yeah. um, and we had, we had outbreaks, but we contained them. We dealt with them very effectively. We were very lucky because uh, just before COVID really took hold, we had had a. Uh, an issue with TB in a couple of our prisons. And because TB is very contagious, we had set up uh, infection control teams in all of our prisons. So we had the groundwork done. So when COVID arrived, we applied a lot of those regulations. Okay. Now, the downside to the the to, to, to successful management of COVID is that it became very, uh, it, it, the, the regime became quite harsh. So prisoners spent a lot of time in cells. They spent a lot of time isolated from each other. We suspended visits so while we're very proud of what we did and we are very proud of what we did if we looked back and we were to start the process again there are elements of it that we would change because they did have a significant impact on the mental health of prisoners but i suppose the upside as well is that we because of covid we introduced a lot of new technology into the prison so we introduced video calls for example so our visits were always in-person visits or you could make an audio call we then introduced video calls And the feedback from prisoners was was unbelievable because the video call meant that they could see their home so they could do video call and their whoever would say partner could walk around the back garden and show them the back garden, show them the new kitchen that they got or whatever. So it was a new it wasn't our intention, but it was an outcome that we were very surprised about because it gave it gave people in prison a connection to their home that they wouldn't have had because previously when a person came into prison. It was just in a room a visit in a room it was face to face and that was all good but you didn't get that sense of home that you got on a video call so there were positive sides to it, and we were successful in managing COVID. but there are lessons to be learned as well from it as well i would yeah. say are you still doing those video calls so that's a part of the we're still doing the video calls so now you have an option of a video call or an in-person visit um and uh, video calls are still very popular
0: yeah wow amazing now, I know you're pushed for time, so I'm just keeping an eye on it. I'm going to have sure, to... you're okay, you're person. okay. <laughs> now, you're, um, the Mountain Joy has a prison choir and recently performed a tribute to Johnny Cash for what would have been <laughs> his 90th birthday, and I, I saw it on the Irish Times website. And uh, Claire Cronin, the US ambassador to Ireland, said they had an amazing talent. And she also said one inmate said that she, he had not held his daughter for two years, and that Claire felt in the room so much joy, hope, and optimism. What was that like, having that, that
1: choir perform? Well, first of all, Matt, I commend you on your research. You've done great research. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a great event. Uh, so we, we have we have a prison choir for... It's a prisoner choir, and yes. we've had it for the last five or six years, and we've done a lot of events. We collaborate with some state agencies. One of our state training agencies that they train apprentices, they have a choir and the collaboration between the prisoner choir and the state choir has been ongoing for the last five years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've done a lot of events and we've got a lot of media coverage and they are are fantastic singers. And um, uh, so to bring the American, it was the first time we ever had an American ambassador into a prison. And uh, Claire Cronin is a very progressive type of lady. She's very uh, interested in social issues. So it was a great experience for her. It was a great honor for us to have her here. And it just created that fantastic environment um, or that atmosphere. And as that chap who said he hadn't told his daughter for two years, uh, that was in relation to COVID. So COVID had just ended. This was one of our first public events and you could see the emotion in the families getting in to spend some time. And like when you bring families into a prison for an, an event like that, it's much more relaxed. So, people come in, they can have tea and coffee together, they can sit, they can, they can sit in nice little groups and talk for a while, so it's a nice environment, and that was the real positive uh, outcome from this event, and of course, Johnny Cash being yes. synonymous with prisons in many ways, it was, he was, he was the ideal person to, to tribute, to give, to pay a tribute to, um, and uh, plenty of his uh, songs have prison connotations in them, so it was just, it was a unique event, you know, it was really good, yeah.
0: Uh, the Irish Times quoted something funny that you said that uh, you, you're thinking about taking them on tour. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah you see, uh, there was a, we, you know, but it two other prisons is what we told them. <laughs>
0: and also, um, inmate Patrick said that he never expected for this to happen and the sense of being somewhere and being with people was so overwhelming, but he, but he loved it. Um, I mean, that must have
1: been for the inmates. Being yeah, and, and you know, the funny thing is, um, what we take for granted like we think you know you know even talk even even you know engaging in the conversation with somebody um uh, it can be a variety of conversations prison conversations are due, usually very restricted to uh food visits drugs you know so the conversations among the inmates themselves are all very much centered around a small group of subjects. So to bring somebody like the American ambassador in and have a conversation about Johnny Cash and have a conversation about, you know, American culture and all of those kind of things are very, you know, that we take them for granted because we do it all the time. But for prisoners, it's very unique. So Patrick is right. It was a very, um, uh, I suppose, inspiring uh, event for the lads themselves. And, you know, the great thing about these events as well is that very often there is a culture of Uh, them and us okay so prisoners always feel that you know we are the bold people and in uh, events like that there's a real sense of equality we have a park run for example we we have a park run as well yeah so our park run is every Saturday morning like every park run in the world and we bring people in from the community and it's seven and a half laps of the prison they run together and then the best part of the park run is the social piece afterwards. So the people who come in from the community, are usually from running clubs or sporting organisations or community organisations, and they have no connection with the prison, but they spend an hour then afterwards where we all have a cup of tea and a cup of coffee and a chat. And they, I, I don't know of any person who hasn't left the prison absolutely, you know, overjoyed and completely taken aback by that hour conversation with prisoners because they have a perception of the crime and nothing else so when you get to have a conversation with somebody and they talk about their children you know where they came from you know what they train you know what uh, employment they had and all of, it humanizes it to a degree that people don't understand so the park run is another example of mm-hmm. uh, breaking down barriers and creating an environment where people accept that people have done wrong but at the same time it doesn't necessarily define their whole personality. So we love, and we've always been, I and mean, I've always been passionate about engaging with the community and bringing the community in for as many events as possible. Because when I joined the prison service, nobody other than prison yeah. staff, prison contractors or prisoners, or maybe legal people came into prison. You never brought communities in. Wow. Now we, we really value the impact a community can have on people in prison. And we also like to engage with the community in terms of how we can support the community. So, for example, Mount Shaw has a horticulture area and we donated hanging baskets to all of the old folks in the community and we would give them plants and planters and all of these kind of things to show that we're part of the community and we're here to support the community as much as we can. Wow. I mean, you're doing amazing things there. That, that's just... Ah, we're not really, Matt, but we're just trying to, we're just trying to come up with new ways of, yeah. of supporting people and also giving, uh, you know, Putting a more balanced uh, perspective on, on people in prison. As I said earlier to you, there are people in prison who are not interested. They yeah. want to come in and do their time and get out and rebuild their criminal empire. But they are the minority. The majority of people are embroiled in criminality because of their circumstances. Now that's my view. Some people will disagree with you, but that would be my view. Yeah. Now having the inmates being able to talk to the public, do you find
0: that it helps them re-engage with people yeah. for when they get out?
1: I think so. I think so. Uh, as I said, unfortunately, the community supports are not there th- to the extent they should be. So you will often find people will regress when they go back in, out when they leave prison, and because of isolation, like not a lot of people I've talked. I've met a guy recently on Grafton Street. Grafton Street would be our most fashionable street in Dublin, and I met this guy, and uh, it was nine o'clock at night, and he recognised me, and he he was we we'll call it worse, the worse for the wear. So he probably he had taken some, um, sort of drugs and, but he knew who I was and we stopped the talk and, uh, he, um, asked him how he was. And he said he was, I won't use the term. Maybe it's, it's probably not the right podcast, but he was well, in now a bad you can, way. Now you can say whatever you like. Okay. So he said he was fucked. Right. And he explained that he was back using drugs and, uh, But the really sad part about, I suppose I'm saying this in a very long-winded way, was he had told me the last person he spoke to was the person who gave him his breakfast in the homeless shelter that was about 15 hours earlier. So he's walking around the street, completely isolated. And like when you go to an area like Grafton Street, you have the best of shops. It's very, very, very middle class. And you have people buzzing around, and it's a really cosmopolitan place to be. And this guy in the middle of that is completely lonely. And it really is... An example of you know of, of a two-tiered society and you know unfortunately it's not unique to ireland it's all over the world i'm sure you've similar problems in australia and uh, you know and i think it's important that we highlight that as
0: much as we can definitely are you in uh, are you in regular contact with other governors of prisons just sort of bouncing ideas off each other yeah
1: yeah we, we'd have a very good network and um, we'd have a very good relationship um uh, because it's a small organization so our policies are centralised. So we would meet officially every month and we would talk about how um, new initiatives. And as I say, overcrowding is a big issue. So we de- how we will deal with overcrowding. If there's a particular issue with drugs, we'll talk about that. So we have a very collaborative uh, team. But we'd also be very competitive. So if one prison does something, the other prison wants to do better, you know, that kind of thing. So that that exists as well, you know.
0: Fantastic. Um, female officers. Do you have female officers in a,
1: in a men's prison? You do, uh, and I suppose when I joined the prison service, the ratio was ten percent female in a male prison and ten percent male in a female prison. Now that's not the case. There's no strict um, guidelines, so you would have a lot more than ten percent in a male prison and and vice versa in a female prison. Um, but I suppose the, the reality is, it would be it's a, it's a it's a it's a strange environment at the best of times in a prison. It'd be even more strange if you had just Male staff and male prisoners, so you do need the female influence and it's very significant and female and intuition is different, so a man will pick up on something different to a woman, so there's a really good um team approach from the staff uh, and 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 female staff do every job that a male officer does so there is no distinction obviously bar certain things in, in areas where there would be uh, dignity and 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 issues like that you wouldn't the female staff and a male or male staff in a female area but other than that for the general run of the mill both female and male staff do the same job mm-hmm. and, and yeah it's, it's a good environment it's it's yeah. it's 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 the way it should be
0: yeah. You say it's a good environment, but is it also a, is it a tense environment at times as well? You're
1: always on the... You know- oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, it is. Oh, it is a tense environment. I mean, uh, you know, if you take it today, we've 808 people. Um, none of them want to be here. Right? Okay. So, the, so they're in a place where they don't want to be. They want to be back in the community. So you're obviously going to have that tension between staff and prisoners. Now, Irish people are known for their what, what what we call the gift of the gab. Our Australians are probably similar, so talk, 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 and that's very beneficial in in a, in a place like a prison because you can build a relationship. So we would be known, and we would have a reputation in Europe for being the relationship between prisoners and staff is very positive uh, compared to, would say, other other uh, societies where there would be a much greater divergence between both staff and prisoners. And I think that's based on our DNA. Our, we are natural talkers. We try and engage prisoners are talkers, staff are talkers. So that relationship is quite good. No, it's not perfect. And there's always, you know, there are points of conflict and there are points of dif- disagreement, but on the whole, I think the, the, the balance between uh, prisoner and staff is very good. Um, and I'd and say we would be known for that. You know, as a race we would be known for people who get on with people. We like to, we're nosy people. We like to ask questions. We like to get information.
0: <laughs> now, um, I was telling my 11 year old daughter that I was interviewing you and she, she was quite excited. And she said, can you ask me if there's many escapes? The you know, inmates trying to break out of the
1: <laughs> So no, you know, we, we back in about the 70s and 80s we had a couple of escapes from our um our uh high security prison and we had a famous escape here in i think it was around 1975 or 1976 when a helicopter landed in our exercise yard and well, had one of them escaped. we had one of them as well yeah so um and that was pretty um like, it was sensational at the time. Um, and it was related to the IRA, which would would, would wow. which would have been a the well-known terrorist organization. So it was always, it's, it's like folklore now, because all of the staff that were here then, or were there, here then, are gone. So none of us would remember that, because we're all too young to remember. But it was uh, something that would be talked about a lot. And, you know, nobody could believe that somebody would have the the balls, as they say, to land an air, a, a, a helicopter and, and escape. So yeah. Well, you
0: know what happened here in <laughs> Australia many years ago? There was a female yeah. officer that fell in love with a an inmate and she broke him out of the prison via helicopter. She went up in the helicopter with the pilot and held wow. him I think it was gunpoint and said, You gotta land in that prison and get him. And they were they're on the road for a few weeks. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's amazing
1: what love does, isn't it? <laughs>
0: It changes us. Now I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure you've been asked this question probably a thousand times. But what's what's one thing you'd like to change about the prison system, if you could? Oh, um I mean you are I changing- suppose I would like to
1: sorry. You are changing many things, but yeah, no, no, no. I I, I suppose I it's a it's a kind of a noble question, it isn't it? It's an aspirational question. I would like to see, um and I suppose I've touched on it as we talked here. I would like to see Opportunities for people leaving prison, more opportunities, a more tolerant society I think now I think Ireland is a pretty tolerant society anyway, but I think there are still uh, there's still a journey to go in relation to supporting people leaving prison and I think we have to you know it's as I say not everybody uh, and a big majority I think of people in prison have multiple issues like mental health like, like addiction like poverty. And they are the underlying factors that have brought them to this period in their life. So I think we need to be, um, Ireland is a wealthy society now, like the economy is really booming. So I think we need to be more uh, conscious of people on the margins of society and support them in a greater way. And I know that sounds very noble, but like I have to say that. And I I think it's important that more people say that who, you know, people who have an opportunity to maybe influence that. They say that a bit more often. So it's a bit noble, but that's what I'd like to see a bit more opportunities for people definitely do you and and i'm not singling
0: anyone out but do you think people that come from maybe sort of like poverty as younger kids or their parents have been in and out of jail so they've seen that life that they tend to become
1: like that as well do you you find that well the statistics will bear that out the 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 reality is one in every two people in prison in Ireland will have had or known a family will have had a family member or known somebody in prison so it's very much intergenerational there's no question about that um and like it's it's both it's both related to you know environment and families so and we've always said and the and the funny thing is if you talk to people in prison you know i I don't know of any prisoner who's never said to me i really don't want this for my children right but because of circumstances and the be- because of the fact that it has been part of that family profile, very many people do end up in prison. So what we, what like, in in without giving up on people who are already in prison, if you can really target and focus on people, on the on the children of people who've been in prison and the, and the families of people who've been in prison, that will probably deliver greater results for the next generation. But yeah, it is intergenerational. There's no doubt about that. It's absolutely intergenerational. Yeah.
0: Wow. Unbelievable.
1: Um, weapons are they are they a big problem in, in, inside? So weapons are a problem in every prison, and I suppose here you'll find that you know people will, will improvise and make weapons, and um, so uh, we don't have a, a huge uh, cache of uh, of. Genuine weapons, but people will fashion weapons out of objects and and so yeah, weapons are a problem, and you know blades in particular things like that are a problem and um, what we do from time to time is we' run an amnesty in the prison, so we will we will give people the opportunity, particularly if there's been a spate of attacks or a spate of of slashings as we would call them we would we have a, a Red cross uh, volunteer program here, and we would run a an amnesty through the Red cross. And that would give an opportunity for people to take weapons out of it because oh, very wow. often people, ca- they will very often carry weapons and they will say as a form of defense. But of course, you know, both people will say the same thing. But when, when one person pulls a weapon and the other person pulls a weapon, it doesn't matter who's defending each other. They're now in a situation where they can cause down, harm. So we do have a problem with weapons. And I think it's kind of, a, again, it's a standard problem across prison systems across the world where weapons are, you know, a reality. We try and take them out of the of the environment as, as much as possible.
0: Yeah. Have you ever seen a weapon made thinking, what the hell is this? Like, how did they come up? No,
1: look I mean, I mean, it's amazing. Like, you know, I've seen toilet brushes, for example. You know, we say, you know, a prisoner has a toilet brush in the cell, and. It's a basic requirement, you know. People need them, and you'll come in, you'll see a, 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 a dagger or a spear made out of a uh, wow. out of a toilet brush that can do serious, serious damage, and lots of other things. That's just the one thing that comes to mind, now. Yeah. But you know, it is incredible what people can do design, you know, with the most basic of uh, of pieces of equipment, and you know, you're you're often amazed, and you know, it's incredible. You say, how did they? How did this happen? You know. Yeah. but that's the, that's the human mind you know they, that's the way people a lot of time to think and they look at something and say we would never see it as a weapon and yeah. they would see an opportunity and create a weapon out no, yeah,
0: that's fine, you know. yeah i'm being mindful yeah. of the time i could ask you a thousand more questions but uh last one what's sure. next for governor Mullins? what what's what comes after this what what would you like to do
1: here's an interesting one for you this is a bit of you're getting breaking news here now okay i am um, So I'm retiring from the prison service next week. Next week? Wow. Next week. And I've been appointed to the role of CEO of an organization called Merchants Key Ireland. And Merchants Key Ireland is a homeless and drug addiction service. So I'm I'm moving into a different sphere. Um, A lot of the clientele who we would have in prison would avail of the services of the organization I'm going to. So I have a lot of, there's a lot of transferable skills but it is a new, it's a new uh, lease of life for me. It's a new departure. Wow. I think it's the right time. So you're getting hot news off the press. He's right here. Wow. <laughs> Breaking that's, news. That's a big loss amount Mountjoy. joy. I mean, I... I've ah, it's not. It. No, we have a great team here. It's not, you know, I mean, I've enjoyed my time, but there is a really good team. And the person who's taken over for me will do a better job, I've no doubt. Are you going to miss it? I, I will miss it yeah i am I'm emotional about it in some respects because I've enjoyed it I do like it but i do I'm really excited about the role I'm going into, and I think I can hopefully add value to that in some way as well so that's that's my objective anyway
0: amazing congratulations I mean that yeah thank you very much uh, it's been such an honor to speak with you. I was really looking forward to it when you said yes I, I couldn't wait for you to come on and uh, have a chat with you. You're welcome back anytime. So uh, Thanks, man. I hope we didn't let you down though. I hope you got something I know, out of it. It's been amazing. Too. I really appreciate it. I'll, um, I'll wrap up. That was episode 54 of Talking Prisoner. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this interview everywhere you can. It'll also be available across all the podcast platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts from. And also on the talkingprisoner.com website. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you Governor Mullins Thank you very much Ma.
2: I used to give her roses I wish I could again But that was on the outside And things were different then We'd build our world together, sharing all the love we'd known. Till I had to face the nightmare. Of waking up alone, on the inside, the sun still shines, and the rain falls. But the sun and rain are prisoners too Had to face the nightmare Waking up alone On the inside the sun still shines And the rain falls down But the sun and rain are prisoners too On the inside the roses grow They don't mind the stone ground But the roses here are prisoners too When morning comes around I used to give her Roses. roses I wish I could again But that was on the outside Things were different